Come on, that was so good. I so appreciate Vic reaching out. So appreciate Sharon reaching out. That's part of who we are as a church. It's part of what we believe that sometimes God speaks to you, and then that's something for you to share with us when we gather. Hey, just before we get into the message, I just have a couple of things I want to touch on. Hey, don't forget this month for us is our missions giving month. This is the month where we establish our missions budget for the rest of the year. We'll be talking about that at the business meeting at the end of the month. There was an opportunity for you uh, to turn in your card last week, but we know some of you have not yet turned that in, so please make sure that you do that. Again, we ask everybody that calls this their church home. There's a brochure here that are available to you uh, at the Welcome Center that talks about all the different ways your missions money. Uh, supports uh, people and organizations. We ask for a monthly commitment, and then we also ask for a faith promise. Faith promise is you praying, God giving you a number, and then you believing by faith it's going to come in. You don't know how it's going to come in, and then you make a promise that you'll give it to missions uh, when it does. If you've never done anything like this, I'm telling you, God wants to surprise you with a moment of generosity to build faith in your heart, that he wants to give resources to you for you to use them to build his kingdom. Every year, incredible stories come in. So is your faith promise story happens, share it with us, and we'd love to share it with the church. So make sure that you fill out your monthly commitment and then also what your faith promise amount is going to be. For the last couple of years, we've been able to uh, pull groups off of our waiting list. We're believing that we're going to be able to do that again this year. There's two in particular I just want to encourage you with. One is a new ministry uh, that has started here in the 757 to minister to and care for families uh, who are foster parents. It's such a huge need. Uh, in the 757 and in society today. And so we want to be able to support them monthly. And then also that we have dear friends that are in the Middle East. I can't tell you what country that they're in because they're more or less a part of the underground church where they are. And so it's incredibly sensitive. uh, And they live high risk by being Christians where they are. And so we would love to be able to bring them onto our monthly support as well. So all the money that you give to missions, 100% of it goes back out. None of it stays here. Probably anywhere from thirty dollars to $40,000 every year passes through uh, our missions giving budget to go back out into the world. And so we pray that you will be a part of that. Hey, I just want to invite you to uh, Chris House. Come on, Chris House, our creative arts director. Amazing job, right? Such an amazing job week in and week out leading this team, leading us in worship. But he just he put a challenge out on uh, Facebook I saw the other day uh, because it's Black History Month that, uh, that we should go on a Sunday morning because we're Saturday church, you can do that. Uh, go visit a, a black church uh, on Sunday morning. Now you might say, well, Fred, I thought City Life was a black church. And I would say, well, that's the problem. That's why you need to go and visit a church somewhere else. So Vanessa and I are, are, are going to his mom's church down in Phoebus tomorrow morning. And so if you'd like to join us there, we'll be there at, uh, at 10 o'clock. It, it is the Open Door Full Gospel Baptist Church Fellowship with, uh, with Pastor Gail House, Chris's mom. And so uh, you can join us there for that one or find another one this month and go out and uh, find yourself in a church that's different from uh, what you're accustomed to. Well, we are in a series, we launched it uh, two weeks ago called Project Here. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap tonight, not a lot, but I want to get into uh, really the, the, the first deep dive into uh, what this series is about. Uh, we're going to be talking about religious conversion tonight. Uh, next week, we'll take a break from the series for the next two weeks. I usually take a couple of weeks off from the pulpit in February every year to get ready for the business meeting. Uh, so you're going to hear from Vanessa next week. Come on, you know that's going to be great. I know. 
And then I'm excited, too, the week after that, Pastor Jeff Mingi's going to come and share. He's the senior pastor of Catalyst Church, which is the Sunday morning congregation here uh, on campus with us. He's going to come and tell a little bit about the story of Catalyst Church, and then he's also going to just share about why his heart is similar to our heart, uh, that churches should work together, and that we believe more together than we disagree on, and that the world is looking for a witness of unity amongst the body of Christ. And so he's going to speak into that vision uh, that we share uh, so wonderfully together. And so I'm excited uh, for that as well. All right, so let's get into the series tonight. So Project Here is, is, is the name of our, our, our series. And, and what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago is that I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. We talked about, right, I ordered one of these little hammers, didn't have it a couple of weeks ago, but the little patella reflex hammer that back in the day when you would go get a physical, they would tap your knee, and, and, and you didn't try to move it, but your leg moved. And we talked about how this is what the Holy Spirit is constantly doing with our heart. He's constantly probing the different parts of our heart to see if we are reflexively obedient to Him. All of us in certain areas of our lives, we're either rebellious, or we are reluctant, or we are reflexive. Now, we might have certain areas of our heart where we are reflexive in our obedience. We might have certain areas of our heart where we are reluctant, and we might have certain areas of our heart where we are rebellious. And this series is about us moving our heart to a place where it's reflexive in every way. We're, we're building off of this idea of Shema that we find in the Old Testament that's part of Jewish culture and how in the Hebrew language there is no word for obedience. There's no word for obey. There's only the word Shema. Because in Hebrew culture, if you listen to someone that you trust who is in a place of authority over you, then when you listen, your reflex should be obedience. So in our relationship with God, in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament, there was no need for a word to obey. There was only the word to hear or to listen because when we hear or listen to God, obedience necessarily should always follow. It should be our reflex. And so I introduced to you this diagram last week that is going to lay out where this series is taking us. And these are the five conversions of the heart, and we're going to spend a week exploring each one. The idea being that as we give ourselves to each one of these conversions individually, there is a renovation or a transformation in the human heart that closes the gap between listening and doing to where they become one, which is Shema. And the idea of Shema is not just an Old Testament concept, it's also a New Testament concept. You just hear Jesus using that phrase in a different way, as we will see again tonight. If we want the reflex of our hearts to be one of obedience to God, a return to Shema, we must do the hard work that transforms it from being desperately wicked to delightfully worshipful. It's going to take longer, and it's going to cost more, and it's going to be harder than we think. Father, I pray for all of our hearts tonight. As your word challenge us, Holy Spirit, as you convict us, Father, I know even in my own journey, my tendency to respond when I hear things that I disagree with, my first response is disagreement, as opposed to what it should be when I hear something that challenges me. God, I know what I'm supposed to say is to ask you, God, how should I respond to that? 
And I pray that the things that we hear tonight that might cause some sense of disagreement in people's hearts, God, I pray that that would not be their first step. I pray that their first step would be one of asking you, what should my response be to this thing that I'm hearing that's new to me? God, I pray that we would be hungry for truth, even the truth that convicts us, and sometimes even the truth that causes us to lay down things that have been sacred to us, God, that we now see are sin. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Religious conversion, that's where we're going to start. We're starting with religious conversion because without that one, the rest, we're in trouble because we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. I'm going to read that again. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. Life. Now, I'm not going to spend an enormous time on it tonight, but the idea of making a vow of devotion to Christ, this is free for you. If you don't have one of these copies, you can see someone in a blue shirt, a little green a Praxis booklet. It's about discipleship, but there's also a, a whole chapter that's dedicated in here to, about grace and what salvation is and the gospel and how to make a vow of devotion to Christ. But let me just touch on it just briefly because I, I want to spend more of our time talking tonight is what does a life look like once you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. But let's just talk a little bit about this idea of a vow of devotion. John 1.12, we find this, but to all who believed him, referring to Jesus, and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Which means that when you and I are born into this world, we are a part of God's creation, but we're not yet his children. Now, it kind of it's a colloquialism, right? We talk about we're all the children of God, but, but we're really not. If we're in this world, we're a part of his creation, but we don't become a part of the family of God until we make a vow of devotion to him and we're born into that family through Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 3, 1 through 5. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak to Jesus. He said, Rabbi... We all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs or evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Listen to what he says. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven without being born of water, which is your natural birth, and of the Spirit, which is your spiritual birth, which comes after we make a vow of devotion to Christ. Again, it's what John was referring to when it says when we believe him, he gives us the right to become the children of God. We find this too in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved, which means that you're saved by being born into the family of God. I was having a conversation with a friend not too long ago that was a young Christian leader and they were asking me about a question that was posed to them by a friend who's not a Christ follower and they were saying that to, to their friend that, they, hey, I do a lot of the things that Christians do, so don't I get the same benefit that you get by doing them? I'm in community, I, I like to pray, I like to talk, believe that there is some power out there and so I, I talk to whoever that is and beseech and, and, and they went down a the list, they said I fast and and, and so my friend came to me and said, well, Fred, how, how, 
I didn't know what to say to them because they gave me a list of things that they often do and it mirrored the things that a Christian, don't they get the same benefit? And I said, no, they don't. They don't get the same benefit because there are three parts to who we are as a human being. I have a body, and this body gives me form and function. We teach this. I have a soul. My soul gives me eternity and identity. But then I also have a spirit, and my spirit gives me life and meaning. Now, every person is born with a body, every person is born with a soul, and every person is born with a capacity for spirit, but it doesn't come to us until we are born again. So a person that practices things that are religious but have not yet made a vow of devotion to Christ, they experience some measure of benefit from those things to the degree that they help their body and to the degree that it helps their mind, will, and emotions. But there is a part of us that is yet to be born. We've not yet taken our first spiritual breath until we make a vow of devotion to Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that you are born into this world waiting for your next birth to come. And that birth does not come until you surrender your life to Christ and the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. And then at that point that you make that vow of devotion to Christ, at that point that the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you and you begin to do the things which we're going to refer to tonight that we call pathways, they are effectual you in even a deeper way because they minister to you at a spiritual level. So let's talk tonight about what a life looks like on the other side of conversion. Because one of my fears is that so oftentimes in churches, we talk so much about the religious decision that we lose sight of the religious conversion. My fear is, even from growing up in the church and sitting through so many messages that spend all the time talking about the choice that I'm supposed to make, but then talks very little about the journey that I should begin. And what I would suggest to you, that if you make a religious decision, but then do not submit yourself to a religious conversion, that there's little, very little meaning to the decision that you previously made. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 5. We're going to look at 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is Jesus' most famous sermon. It spans three chapters in the book of Matthew. Now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of an outline in case some of you want to do a deeper dive on this study. All these uh, uh, outlines every week we put online. You can get through our website. You can download it as a PDF. So I'm putting this in here for you if you want to have this study. But, but let me just give you a brief overview, and then we're going to talk, talk about what I believe the Sermon on the Mount is really intended for us to understand. If, if you look at chapter 5 in verses 1 through 19, what you find are a list of virtues, or what many people are familiar with are called the Beatitudes. And what I would suggest to you is that just as in Galatians 5, this is just as much a list of the fruit of the Spirit as Galatians 5 is. In fact, there are five great growth lists, which we talk about in this book, that give us the full picture of the character of Christ, of the virtues that should be present in us. And then when you get to 520, the sermon turns. And this is where Jesus leaves his conversation about virtue and begins a conversation about sin. 
In verses 21 through 47, he gives us an example of different kinds of sin that violate the kind of virtue that should be present in us if we've made a vow of devotion to Christ. And then 548 is kind of the closing for that part of the sermon. There's another hinge version, 6-1, that takes us into a different, different conversation where he begins to talk about spiritual disciplines. Then he talks to us about having an eternal point of view, which we're going to talk about tonight. And then in 7, what we find, it's a recap of 5 and 6. Verses 1 through 6 is a reminder about who you are. 7 through 12 is about trusting God and asking for help. 13 to 14, about yes, it's hard work. 15 to 23 is say, hey, but don't pretend or fake it if you're having a hard time. Authenticity. And then 24 to 29, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he says to us, Shema. So let's look at chapter 5 with a little bit greater depth. If you have made a vow of devotion to Christ, virtue has come into you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The character of Christ is now a part of you because he's in you. The question is, will your soul, the part of you that has a will, the part of you that has choice, will you begin to yield yourself to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit inside of you to transform your character into that of the character of Christ? So the Sermon on the Mount starts with virtue because Jesus is saying that's where it begins for us. And if virtue is now a part of me, he says this as he picks up in a verse, verse 20 or so, virtue begins to lead us away from sin. And all throughout the fifth chapter, he says, Shema, Shema, Shema. And you might say, well, Fred, I don't see that written in there. And you're right, it's not. Because now he's in a different culture and a different time and he has a different audience. So he says Shema in a different way. If you look in your Bible, what you see repeated over and over, he says, you have heard that it was said. You, you have heard that it was said, which in Jesus' Jewish culture, he was saying, if God says something to you, Shema. He's talking to them about the reflexive obedience that should come from my heart in response to him when I face the temptation of sin, that virtue now should influence my will to lead me out of the sin that I formerly committed. And it's interesting to me that this list that he gives us, and it's a pretty serious list. Can we just agree on that? Murder, adultery, divorce, deceit, revenge, and hate. That, that, that's, those, are, those are six weighty things. Murder, adultery, divorce, deceit, revenge, and hate. And I love how Jesus, when he talks about each one of these individually, uses the word if. Because his assumption is not that you're going to do them, but he says, if you do. Because he's trying to help us to understand that all of us have a choice when it comes to temptation. He wants us to understand that when the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, we do not have to be a victim of our human desire. It's why when the Apostle Paul comes and he gives us Romans 7, where he talks about how he he, he constantly does the things that he doesn't want to do, but he, 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 he doesn't do the things that he should. But then it shifts to Romans 8. And he says, but now I'm free. 
He's not talking about his current struggle. He's talking about the struggle of humanity before you make a vow of devotion to Christ, that you are a victim to human nature. But once you make a vow of devotion to Christ and you're born into his family and the Spirit of God now lives inside of you, there should be something inside of you that's saying to your will, you don't have to do that anymore. And you have the power to resist. And you have the power to say no. I love that he says if, because he's saying to you and he's saying to me, I believe in you. And I know that no matter how strong that temptation might feel, no matter how much that behavior may have been a part of your life formally, it doesn't have to be a part of your life presently, and it certainly should not be a part of your life in your tomorrow. Now, one of the things that's often overlooked in Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus isn't just talking to us about morality. He's not just talking to us about the sins that virtue should lead us away from. He's not just talking to us about things that, were, that, were, that, that we formerly did because we didn't have any power to resist. He, he actually begins to say to you and to me, the sin doesn't begin when you commit the act. The sin begins when you nurture the desire. He says, right, you have heard that it was said, Shema, right? You have heard that it was said that that." that that if you have a sexual relationship outside of marriage, you've committed adultery. But Jesus said you've committed adultery when you begin to lust in your heart after another person. Jesus is saying that, that if you're going to stop the sin, if virtue is going to have the influence over your will that it should, you've got to intervene at the point that the feeling of temptation comes. Don't nurture it, because even in nurturing it, you've already begun to sin yourself. But then he doesn't just stop there. If you read through Matthew 5, and I hope some of you do, what you begin to see is that Jesus raises the standard even more. He says to you and to me, if you are a person of virtue, if you've been born into the family of God, he actually wants to change the way that we respond to people that we see who are now committing those sins that we're walking away from. Jesus says, Jesus says, he has expectations of us of how we respond to people that we view ourselves as being immoral because of the lives that they live. Jesus says to you and to me that you can stop the immoral activity, you can stop even the desire and not nurture the temptation but you can still be a person who sins by the way that you treat people who haven't yet overcome the sin themselves. You see, the Mosaic Law conditioned people to treat others and to respond to them based on what they did. Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 that's not how it's going to work from now on. We're not going to respond to people based on what they do. We're going to respond to people based on who we are. Virtue in me is now going to determine how I respond to a person who commits an immoral act. It's why when they brought the woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus, 
They, they, they couldn't believe that he wasn't ready to punish her because their society was conditioned to respond to people based on their action. And Jesus is saying, we're going to change that. Not that justice doesn't need to be served. Not that there doesn't need to be law and order. But that's going to be government's responsibility. Jesus says, I've come to build something called the church. And the church is not going to assume the responsibility to levy out punishment because I've got someone else to take care of those things. I've put you into this world to minister to the person who is broken because of the mistakes that they're making. And he says to you and to me, do not respond to people based on how they act. Respond to people based on who you are and the virtue that is inside of you because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus died for us, not because we deserved it. Jesus died for the sins of the world, not because he responded to us based on who we were. He responded to us based on who he is. And he says to you and me, you be that to the world. All right, so let me step on some toes. This is part of me, 50, and don't care. Church is either going to grow tonight or it's going to get smaller. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but, but we're in the midst of a presidential election. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but, but, but we live in, in an incredibly polarizing time in history in America. And one of the things that breaks my heart is that people that profess to be Christians are part of that polarization. And you know why they're part of that polarization? Because they've not yet read Matthew 5 in the way that they were supposed to. And so many people, when you look on, I don't know, things maybe called Facebook, and you, and you see the the, the hate and the rage that comes out of people who are supposed to be Christians, I think, I think God's upset. I think he's upset. Is he upset with immorality in our world? You better believe he is. But you know what I think he's even more upset with? I think he's more upset with a church that chooses to continue to respond to people based on what they do instead of responding to people based on who they are. Because that's the standard of Christianity. You're either going to have a textual Christianity or you're not. You're either going to have a textual Christianity or you're not. Now, I'm not saying if you make these kinds of mistakes that you're not going to heaven because that's under grace. But it doesn't mean that he's not going to give some people some spankings once they get there. This book is supposed to dictate our behavior. We use this book as a lens to judge the behavior of other people, which we are supposed to do. But we've set down this book when it comes to how we're supposed to respond to those people once we see the behavior that we feel is wrong. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that sin is just as much of a sin as the immorality that's on this list. So you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus picked these six things that are egregious. Listen to me. He picked these six things that are so egregious because he wants us to see how he views us when we respond to those people inappropriately. 
He's not just trying to help us to understand how destructive that behavior is. He's using it by way of comparison and contrast to help us understand the church of how we fail society and how we hurt society by responding to them when they commit that sin as opposed to responding to them based on the virtue of our heart. It's troubling to me. It's troubling to me that that I read posts, even some from people that I call friends, how angry and how, 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 how they speak so poorly of other people. Oftentimes, are those other people responsible for immorality in our society? Sure they are. But it doesn't mean that we are now justified in committing the sin ourselves and how we treat them. It's one of the reasons why I'm so disappointed in our president. Name-calling, making fun of people based on how they look. How, how is that right? I should not, if my children, listen to me, if my children were young, I would not let them listen to his speeches because he consistently uses profanity when he talks. And he did it again just this week. And yet here we see people who profess Christianity cheering his behavior. Now, I support most of all of his agenda and most all of his policies, unashamedly so. And you might disagree with that, and that's okay. That's part of this conversation about diversity, and we're going to get that when we get to sociopolitical conversion. But at some point, the church has got to look at behavior and say, that's wrong. Just because we are responding to someone who does an immoral act is not now permission for me to be immoral in my response to them. We either have a textual Christianity or we don't. And Matthew chapter 5 could not be more clear to you and to me. When we observe someone who does something immoral, the way that I treat them, the way that I respond to them should not be based on what they did. It should be based on the virtue that I have. And virtue never calls names. Virtue does not use vulgar conversation. Virtue does not Make fun of people because of the way that they look. It's wrong and it's troubling and the church should stand up and say so. But even in our response to the president and his behavior, it doesn't mean that we now have permission to treat him the way that he treats others. You tracking with me? The church is supposed to set the standard. The church says speak truth but speak it in love. Speak truth, but speak it in love. Jesus has so much to say about a religious decision, but then he says to you and me that religious decision should lead to a religious conversion. And the Sermon on the Mount is given to us to show us what that life is supposed to look like. And in Matthew 5, he begins by saying, a person who has been born into the family of God should be a person of virtue. And a person of virtue should now be moving away from sin. And moving away from sin isn't just moving away from immoral behavior themselves, but it's moving away from the desire that leads to it. And it's also moving away from the response that we used to have to people that we ourselves viewed as immoral. And then in chapter 6, he continues. Oh, come on, the Sermon on the Mount, it's so rich. Look at, look at look what he says in 6.1. 
Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I want you to know I'm about ready to change gears on you here. This is the the pastor in the pulpit who says, we've been talking about immorality, now let's talk about something different. Because virtue shouldn't just lead me away from sin, virtue should also lead me towards pathways or spiritual disciplines. And I love this, come on, Jesus stops using the word if and he starts using the word when. You ever notice that? In five, it's if, 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 because he's saying, I believe in you. That one day you're going to stop doing these things. But when he gets to six, he doesn't use the word if anymore. He uses the word when. And he uses the word when because he expects all of us to do these things. He leaves behind the word if because generosity is not an if, it's a when. He leaves behind the word if because prayer is not supposed to be an if, it's supposed to be a when. He leaves behind the word if because fasting is not supposed to be an if, even though we all understand that it's the Christian F word, it's supposed to still be a when in our lives. It's interesting, isn't it, that here in chapter 6, he gives us three of what we call our 12 pathways. He shifts the conversation onto spiritual discipline. I remember when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990. The church that I was going to then, Mechanicsville Christian Center, who, come on, Corey and Nicole DeWeese, our dear friends, coming and visit us tonight. It's good to have you here. The church, like many churches in January, right? If you're a Christian, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to fast in January. <laughs> and, and so I did one of my very first fasts as a young, devoted follower of Christ at 20, we've been now was getting ready to be 24 years old in 1991. And I remember I had not eaten anything but, but juice or water for a couple of days, and I had moved back home with my parents. I was trying to get my life together because I had been living a pretty ugly life, and, and I knew that it was going to be a journey for me, this journey of conversion. And I was falling asleep that night, and my stomach was growling, and, 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 and I felt like, I've never again heard God's voice, but I like to say I feel God's voice, and I, and I felt God ask me a question. And he said to me, Fred, are you hungry? And he asked me that question over and over and over. Now, if you've ever had a conversation with God, you know that he's not hard of hearing. And if he's asking you the same thing over and over, it's because he's trying to make a point. And so I kept saying yes, and he kept asking me the same question. I kept saying yes. He kept asking me the same question, right? And I was hoping he was going to say to me, then you can break your fast early, go in the kitchen and get something to eat, right? But that's not what he said. This is what he said to me. He said, Fred, that hunger that you're feeling right now in your physical body, I want you to understand that there are, there's another part of you, a spiritual part of you that has now come alive, that's never been alive in you before. And that part of you is hungry too. Even though you can't feel it, it's there. And you're going to have to feed it. And I realized in that moment that part of the journey of fasting is for to me to feel with my physical body what oftentimes is happening in my spirit that I'm disconnected from. And one of the reasons why we fast is to remind ourselves that there is an appetite in my body that I'm reflexive in responding to, and I've got to become reflexive in responding to the appetite of the spirit. And even more importantly, I'm responsible for stirring up those appetites. And the more that I give myself to spiritual disciplines, the more hungry I am for them. 
And so it began a life and a journey of transformation for me, which is a good thing because otherwise Vanessa would have never had anything to do with me. You see, I love that Jesus leaves behind if and he picks up the conversation when. Because he wants us to understand that when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that we are supposed to become people of virtue. And people of virtue should be constantly moving away from sin And people of virtue should be constantly moving towards pathways. Because the only way that virtue is going to grow in my life is if I make my life a spiritually fertile place by the disciplines that he calls me to give myself to. You and I are responsible to stir up our appetites. They fuel the growth of our virtue. There is a reason why in the list of the Beatitudes, in the middle of them, he stops and gives commentary on his own sermon. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He gives us a list of virtue, then he says, hey, you've got to get hungry for these things, and if you do, you're going to be full of them, and then he continues on with the list, because he knows that the sermon that he's leading towards He knows the message that he's about ready to give in 5 and 6 and 7. We make a vow of devotion to Christ. The Holy Spirit is now present in me to influence my will. Virtues are now present in in me to influence my will. And then 1 Corinthians 10.13 is an incredible promise that says to me that no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But will with the temptation make a way to escape. There's always a choice now to say no to the temptation we face. Whether it be for the immoral immoral act, whether it be for the desire, or the response to people who we see have committed that which we now believe is immoral. You and I have a responsibility to build the virtue. If you don't build the virtue, you will not build your ability to stand against the temptation that you face. The Holy Spirit's going to do his part, but he is not going to do our part. It's a partnership. It's why we're told in the Gospel of John that he is our advocate, he is our our comforter. It's, It's actually the same word that's used for an attorney that steps into a courtroom with you. He's there to empower us, he's there to lead us, he's there to inspire us, But there is much of the work that we must do ourselves, hand in hand with him. It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this sermon series, because I believe it's going to challenge many of us in some very weighty ways. Even some things I said tonight, I know are probably troubling to some of you. But scripture is clear. There is a Shema life that we are called to. There is a reflexive obedience that God expects us to have. And just like any renovation project in a building, I I don't think it's a coincidence that God gave us this building that coincided with this revelation of this idea of the Shema because I think in some ways we're supposed to look around this building that needs to be renovated and see our own hearts. Outdated and cracked and broken in many places. And they need repair. And I believe that these five conversions will take us there. Everything starts with a religious conversion because without the help of the Holy Spirit, none of the rest will be fully effectual 
through human effort alone. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. In Matthew 7, verse 11, we find these words. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Oh, it's so good, isn't it? It's incredible, isn't it? After all the things that Jesus has just challenged us with and talked to us about, he says, hey, if you being sinful know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So I have some questions for you tonight. Are you here tonight? Are you struggling with temptation of some sorts? Are you struggling with your response to someone who has sinned, especially if their sin has touched you in a very personal way? Are there some pathways in your life, some spiritual disciplines that you know that you need to begin? When you look at this list of 12 things, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you're familiar with what these 12 things are. When you look at this list, if some of them are missing in your life, what are you going to do about it? Are there virtues that you know that you lack? If you're not sure whether or not you lack virtues, and there's 24 of them we list in this book, then you sit down with someone that you know, like the person that you're married, <coughs> married to or your <coughs> children, and give them that list and ask them to circle the ones that are missing in you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's trouble. Are you here tonight and as you look back onto the story of your life, you would say, I've never even made a vow of devotion to Christ to even get started. Then what I would say to you is tonight can be your night. I'm going to invite you to stand where you are as we go into this song. There's going to be some prayer teams that are up here at the front. If you need, there's also usually prayer teams in the back as well. If it's easier for you to get there, I know sometimes people are in the balcony and if you just need to pray with someone, it might be about something that we've talked about tonight. If you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, find one of these people. Come on, let's get your journey started. You can take your first spiritual breath tonight. Father, I pray that as your children, that we would find your courage. That we would not be swept away by contemporary thoughts. That we would not be swept away by a a way of thinking or perspective that has polluted your church for far too long. I, I pray, God, that we would have the courage to say, we, we, we want a textual faith. We want a scriptural Christianity. We, we want truth to be what ultimately governs our lives. Believing, believing that your Holy Spirit is in us to help us see lies that we bought into, cultural norms that we've embraced and put a label of Christian on it when it doesn't belong. Father, I pray that in, in the year 2020, for all of us who call City Life Church our home, that there is a journey of conversion that you're going to take us on, a transformation, a change, that our life isn't just going to be about a religious decision, it's going to be about a religious life that's defined by you and you alone. In Jesus' name, come on.